a black executive perspective. Look, man, they didn't get a chance to play chess. They had to play checkered. Let's talk about it, T. Openly and honestly. There was a lot of smart kids there. A black executive perspective. Now, my story's not unique. There's thousands of professionals of color who have experiences like mine. A black executive perspective. Whether you're aware of it or not, it's a topic that is often avoided. We'll discuss race and how it plays a factor and how we didn't even talk about this topic because we were afraid. A black executive perspective. In this episode, this and that. Intersectionality 101. Tony Titbit and Les Fry welcome special guest Himalaya Rao Patlapali, Managing Director, the EFM Fund. Many of us have heard the term intersectionality, but do we truly know what it means? Coined by legal scholar Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989, intersectionality is a term for understanding how various forms of inequality interlock and play out in our lives. Welcome to a Black Executive's Perspective podcast, a safe space where we discuss all matters related to race, especially race in corporate America. I'm your host, Tony Tidbit. And hi, I'm your co-host, Les Fry. And in this episode, we'll be discussing the true meaning of intersectionality with our guest. This speaks highly of professional and personal experiences of intersectionality throughout her career. Yes, and we're very excited about it. So our guest today is Himalaya Rao Palapali, who is Managing Director of Black Founders Matter Fund. And she's going to walk us through and give us a lot of ideas and thoughts of intersectionality. Prior to BFMF, Himalaya got an MBA and specialized training in venture finance and worked in seven different firms as the associate deal lead and eventually fund manager. She was also adjunct professor at Portland State University, teaching MBA and MSF students about venture investing and helping stand up their impact ventures program. She also co-launched Venture Partners, an educational nonprofit in partnership with Venture Lab and MVCA Ventures Forward, VC University. She has been recognized as one of the rising stars in venture capital by NVCA Venture Forward and as a 40 under 40 recipient by the Portland Business Journal. She was invited by Senator Wyden to present expert witness testimony in front of the United States Senate Finance Committee on her work with BPOC founders. Himalaya has a passion for expanding the accessibility of entrepreneurship to BPOC and rural communities as a pathway for economic development and generational wealth building. Himalaya, Welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast. Thank you so much for having me. That introduction was so long and it made me actually feel quite old, Um, but thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I'm so excited to talk with both you and Les about all the topics that are really difficult to talk about. That is awesome. Yeah, you know, as I was going through, I was like, wow, she is so accomplished. The only thing missing in your bio is they gave her land and title. All right. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure that if that hasn't happened yet, it's going to happen soon. So but welcome to a black executive perspective. And just to be able to so we can set the stage with our audience. Just tell us a little bit, a little background about yourself, where you're from, your family. 
so hi everyone. Again, my name is Himalaya. Um, now, currently, I am the managing director of the BFM Fund, and I'm also the co-executive director of a nonprofit that trains diverse people in how to break into venture capital. But my background is actually very different. Uh, most people that are in venture capital now, um, who are associates, who run funds, you know, they've uh, mostly come up from top tier schools and then have filtered into investment banking or top tier consulting and then have made their way through that. They're also maybe like former operators that have had exits, um, usually people that have generational wealth or even if they don't have generational wealth, have a lot of wealth in this lifetime. Um, and so I think that that sets the tone sometimes for how policies are created, structures mm -hmm. are created for venture capital. Um, and so I see myself as a, a little bit of an outlier in that um, my journey started off as a social worker. Um, and so that is my my first formal training. My first master's was I got a master's in social work and I was a school social worker in the Bronx. Um, and that was where I started my career. I also am a first generation immigrant. And uh, I think having like that immigrant uh, journey and perspective into the United States um, and being a woman of color and also someone that identifies as being BIPOC um, has really shaped my reality. And last I'm excited to talk with you about what that means. Um, and so, you know, but I think that has really, really my cultural identity, uh, the combination and intersectionality of being both a woman and a person of color mm -hmm. really, really has uh, shaped my reality, my upbringing. Um, and then also then my first career in social work and working alongside a lot of Black and Latino families, being a part of the, the community, I think that that really helped me to understand how there can be different frames of reality. So I'll just like quickly touch on that because I think sometimes people don't understand. So I think that, you know, being, so my parents, um, being from India, I think that sometimes um uh, Indian culture is really, really rich. And um, American culture has its own richness to it. And oftentimes in my household, those were at, at odds. And oftentimes being uh, a person of color and the things that you're taught in your home are antithesis or are antithetical to the things that you're seeing in an American perspective. But what I learned actually from being an immigrant is that there was like extreme immigrant pride in like the country that you came from, as well as American pride. And so then from an early age, I started to see that like both people are super prideful and think that they're super right about something. And so then can two things coexist at the same time and be equally like right in some capacity? And so I translated that over to social work. And so what I mean by that is I actually worked as a school social worker in Hunts Point, which is in the South Bronx. And so when people talk about it, it's like the Bronx of the Bronx, right? And so it's um, an area that um, has, is, is deemed from one perspective, high risk. So when you think about that on paper, it's high risk because there's low literacy rates, low graduation rates, low socioeconomic status. That is factually accurate. And on the other hand, when you actually are part of that community, when you live and work in that area, you start to see that the people of Hunts Point are incredibly resilient, are, have all the fundamentals. When we read Harvard Business Reviews, like articles that come out year after year of like, who could be a successful entrepreneur? Capital efficient, market responsive, all of these like qualities of a successful entrepreneur 
are seen in Hunts Point. And that's only seen if you really know the community that you're working with, right? And right. so I think that two realities can be true at the same time, um, but oftentimes we're only looking at something from one perspective and then making a judgment on what the trajectory can be based on our perspective. And so I think I, I will say that as like who I am because that fundamentally shapes all of the professional decisions I've made and certainly shapes the funds trajectory um, now. Wow. I mean, we just, you want to start all over? I mean, we just got into it. And you, you, <laughs> you, you're killing me with that already. And we're five minutes in. I love it. I love it. I love it. So listen, we're going to dive deeper into that because I have a ton of questions. Um, real quickly, though, just based on what you were saying, you know, one of the areas that we struggle with as human beings is the boxes people put us in, right? And we sometimes try to just live up to that box without recognizing all the other things that we bring to the table, right? Even in our live environment, that's also outside of that box, right? So we definitely want to dive into that. But let's have some quick questions because now you're part of the family. So we, you know, you gave us a good background, but we're going to dive in a little bit deeper just in some of some fun stuff to see what, what, what Himalaya likes. Les? All right, so we do do like a little icebreaker at the beginning. Um, I don't want you to think too heavily on this. Just come, just say whatever comes to top of mind. Uh, okay. We may, you know, engage a little bit more about your, whatever it is that you comment about regarding some of these little icebreaker questions. But the first question that I want to ask you is... Les, I hope that none of these things are pop culture because I know zero things. So let's, <laughs> let's go for okay. it. But listen... <laughs> What, where, wherever you are, wherever okay. you are, wherever you are in, in your knowledge of pop culture or not of pop culture, because, you know, I oh wouldn't boy. say that I am that, I don't, I'm not that astute about pop culture, but wherever you are, just let's talk about it. And yeah, no, yeah, it. it's not Jeopardy. Okay. We good. You good. You really are. All right. So what was the first concert you ever went to? Who was it? And how old were you? Okay, this will definitely show uh, my background. So being an immigrant, um, I was like deeply entrenched in being an immigrant. And so what that meant was that my parents um, were really struggling for a, a lot of years uh, when we moved here. And so I was not um, exposed to a lot of things that most people are exposed to as a child. Um, and so I actually didn't go to my first concert until I was in college. Um, I actually didn't even start listening to music. I started like, we didn't have access to music. We didn't have like uh, a radio or a television that had like a cable. And so uh, when I first started listening to music was when uh, they would be like the 17 magazines. They'd send like little cassettes. Yes. Right? And so I'd like listen to, and it'd be like a, a, a one minute, one and a half minutes like excerpt. And it's like, you know, to try and like prime you to buy the CD. And that's what I would listen to is that like one and a half minutes. So in some of these like pop culture songs, I only know like the track of the first. <laughs> Believe it or not, that's um, all you really need to know anyway, right? <laughs> what was it though? I'm but, curious now. Oh my God. They, they sent a few different ones. They sent like Shania Twain at some point. This was like back in the nineties, right? They sent, I think they sent a little Britney Spears one. They also sent a Brandy one. And so like, you know, I just listened to like little tidbits, but actually in college was 
the first time that I went to a concert and it was like, you know, sponsored by the college. And I was like, oh, I'm so excited to go to a concert, you know, not really even knowing what it was. Um, and so it was actually a, a Drake concert, um, which wow. is like so Okay, awful. all right, <laughs> so all right. Okay, you hit it off the, you hit it like out the ballpark with that one. For the first concert. Was, the Drake experience. Yeah, it was very exciting. And I was like, you know, like, I don't know. I was like imagining, because like, I, I don't know. Again, I'm sometimes the things I say are so immigrant style. But like in my head, I thought it was, I had seen movies of like operas and ballets. So I thought we were all going to be sitting down. And then we'd get to the Drake concert. <laughs> and, you know, like very much like the music. And I was like, oh, wow, this is very more lively than I anticipated. Like, oh, we can be free. We can dance. And so it was um, quite an immigrant shock at the ripe age of like 20 years old. So, yeah, you said it like an opera, right? So you you yeah. hear here in the background say, "Kill the rapper, <laughs> kill the rapper." <laughs> or hotline bling. <laughs> did you have? A, I hope you didn't have your heels on either, because you know. I you I I did. I like fully dressed up because this is my first oh. concert going experience, and I was like really ready for it and. You know, I really do blame my college friends for not like looking at me and like immediately telling me to dress differently. But I had a lot of fun. It was such a phenomenal experience. And I think um, it's so great to like, be, I, you know, for me, it felt like the music was in me. And that was amazing. You know, it's like, so I love the concert experience. Awesome. All right. So the next question I'm going to ask you is what is, I'm going to switch this up a little bit. <laughs> What is your favorite dish, like food dish? You know, like obviously it has to be something that my wife made naturally. Um, oh. But my wife, you know, every single thing she makes is brilliant. And so, you know, no matter what I pick, I'm going to get in trouble here because she's going to hear this podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the things actually that I really, really love, it's like, a, it's simple, right? It's not like actually super, it's not from any of our cultures, but um, Natasha, my wife, um, started, we started making handmade pasta, um, at home. And so, you know, like, and actually realized like when people say like, oh, vegan pasta, it's actually really easy to make it. Cause there's only two ingredients of like the semolina flour and the water. And to be able to like fully make that ourselves, like press it, roll it, laminate it. Um, I think, and then to make the sauce from scratch, like we, you know, like grew tomatoes, grew the basil, wow. did it all ourselves, like even figured out like how to like utilize squash as a way to like, you know, beef it up. And so I know that seems simple, but for us, I think like so much of our lives, especially for those of us who have grown up in cities, you know, like so much of our cultural roots from like an agricultural perspective have been taken away from us. Mm -hmm. And so for us, it was like, actually our first time kind of like reaching back to like make it something from fully scratch and then scratch. being able to like appreciate how like our food is made and being able to do that and connect to our roots. Yeah, that's quite an accomplishment too because I've actually watched videos of how people make actual pasta, chop it up into pieces and stuff like that. It's fascinating. Yeah. I'm, it's still, fascinating. I'm still watching. So I haven't gotten to the action <laughs> side yet, but I'm still watching. And just, you know, just so people know, too, pasta did not come from Italy. Pasta came from China. So yes. people need to know yes. that the Chinese were making pasta. You know, all these things that we now identify as Italian was actually a Chinese, an Asian product. Yes. 
Absolutely. This last that like segues so wonderfully into our conversation because there's so many things in entrepreneurship that we like prioritize a white model of success. We prioritize white ideas, but when we actually look into it, all of our unique cultures within the BIPOC sphere actually create so many origins of entrepreneurship value. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Oh, I couldn't God. agree with you more. All right. And so we're going to do this last question. Okay. All right. Here we go. Bollywood or Hollywood? Who does it better? I'm going to say Hollywood because I am a feminist. And I, while it's gotten different, I genuinely enjoy movies that are not just about a love story and about the like development of a character outside of romantic love. I think there's so much love that can be found in our lives that doesn't have to do with that. And even like love for yourself and love for your journey and your accomplishments. And I think Hollywood does a better job of that. Yeah, it is changing a little bit in Bollywood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. During Pride Month, I did show a film that I think it's the first film of the same-sex, female same-sex relationship that has been mm-hmm. produced out of Bollywood. Now, this Eklatki Kodesa Aiga Lasa, I think that's, that's what it's called. Yeah, okay. very good film. I highly recommend it, by the way. Okay, Les, I'll have to, I'll have to follow up. The, also, I was going to tell both of you, Tony, Les, you'll have to meet up with me and Natasha in person so we can show you how to make pasta. Because honestly, I feel like and this will be my last uh, little like soapbox on the food is so much of our culture has actually been taken away from us. And now we it's been monetized by white society and we have to pay to access that knowledge when it's actually, it belongs to us. It's part of our heritage and our culture. And so for us, it's super important that we like connect back to it and we help give other people access to it. Absolutely. I'm all for that. I'm down. Where you can count us in, right? But you just okay. you just spoke about that. So we're gonna dive into, you know, the things you talked about at the top, you know, even in the warm-up and intersectionality and all the aspects that go to it. So are you ready? Jump I'm into ready. it. All right, let's talk about it. Les, kick us off. All right. So I just wanted to ask you. A lot of people don't know what the terminology BIPOC means. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that, um, how this is a new classifier, identifier of people's identity. Explain to me what BIPOC means to you. Yes. Um, so Les, this is actually a great question. And I've actually running right a fund that prioritizes Black investment. I've had a lot of conversations with other Black founders who say like, hey, why are you talking about BIPOC founders when like the focus and like, we feel like we're being lumped in to a group that doesn't represent us. Mm -hmm. And actually that is why BIPOC was created. So before BIPOC, it was just POC, which is people of color. And within that, when we think about like organizations adopting POC diversity standards or wanting to have like diversity in their hiring as well as recruitment and promotion, we were thinking about just POC. Since that bucket is huge, it's literally anyone that's not white, then inevitably there's a hierarchy there of like, then people were like mostly, right? Like Asian uh, people were being promoted in different fields. And then it was leaving a lot of different groups out that aren't the lowest hanging fruit within POC. And there's a lot of like, you know, different 
class and socioeconomic issues um, and historical context that make it so that even within the POC space, there are some groups that need to make sure that are represented within the broader sphere. That's actually why BIPOC was created. So BIPOC means Black, Indigenous, People of Color to literally call out that Black and Indigenous communities historically, economically, have not had the same treatment in this country or globally Mm -hmm. as other people of color and therefore need a separate distinction. So when you are saying that you, your company policy or your hiring practices are addressing BIPOC standards, you are not just including the POC part, but you are also paying attention to how you are supporting black and indigenous communities. I love that explanation. I really do. And that gives you, that gives you an idea of what that means because so many people here in America are of a mixed race mm-hmm. and we have been forced by American standards to identify as one and not relate to the other. And that's what makes what you were talking about, the richness of people of color. That's what makes us so rich by denying or, or disregarding the ancestor, the indigenous ancestor, you're basically saying that that person doesn't exist. And then therefore any of the gifts that you receive from that, any of the of the the differences, any of the things that make you such a unique individual, you're actually denying that by not promoting that side of yourself. So thank you so much for explaining that for us. And and based on that, how how broad is BIPOC? Because you know, to be honest, I'm just and, and, and excuse my ignorance, you know, I'm just hearing of it. I've probably seen it somewhere before. You know, when you hear people talk about you know POCs. You know, they're not saying BIPOC and, and you're 100 percent right. Right. Um, the, there is a hierarchy and it is a check a box. Well, we have a POC. Right. We have an Asian. We have somebody Hispanic, and you know, blah, 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 blah. Right. And so so talk a little bit in terms of, you know, where we are in terms of that, the 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 the, the definition um, and how we can we broaden it. And then more importantly, when we when it is broadened, what is the pushback? that you get uh, when you talk BIPOC? Yeah, great question. So in general, I will say, I believe that the BIPOC sphere, the umbrella is already pretty large Mm -hmm. because it still encompasses the same people as POC in that it's like literally everyone that's not white. Correct. But now because it has distinctions of black indigenous people of color, then there can be more focus on how there's like two different or rather three different groups within the BIPOC sphere that need to be incorporated so that you can't just focus on the lowest hanging fruit. That being said, I will say like I am constantly challenging myself to figure out like how I personally can do better and how like thinking about like the the challenges we have. And for me, I will say the term BIPOC helped more companies orient around how are they supporting particularly black individuals? And that was great. And what we saw was then when we saw, especially in 2020, I'll talk about venture capital. A lot of venture capital firms were like, okay, we want to invest more in black founders. We want to hire black individuals to work at our funds. But the result of that was that, yes, like from demographically, you can say you invested in 
black founders or hired black individuals, but they were also all from Stanford or Harvard. Mm. So then there's also like a class link mm-hmm, to it, right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's an established socioeconomic link between access to higher education and particularly access to Ivy League education from the undergrad or you know like you know masters or beyond. There there's like a a true established data driven link. And so when we say like we will invest, we will now focus on black and indigenous individuals, but actually you have to meet a certain class standard Mm -hmm. in order to be considered, then it still is leaving out a huge majority of people who identify as black and indigenous, who because of historical wealth gaps, policies that were discriminatory, zoning issues, Mm -hmm. all of these like fundamental core things that are still happening today, then you're still leaving out a huge percentage. And I think we always try and figure out a way, like no matter how much we segment it, we're like, okay, what's the lowest hanging fruit in each of those segments? Mm -hmm. And I think my challenge to myself and to like others is to like really think about the intersectionality between race, gender, and class. And like, if you really are looking at those three intersections, then I think it will challenge us to make more holistic decisions around the way we structure programs, the way we hire individuals, the types of people we decide to invest and support in. And so that's like more so where I'm like focused on to like even increase um, beyond just BIPOC. And then number one, thanks for explaining that. So what, what is some of the pushback that you get? Because now you're being specific, right? Versus yeah. just POCs, which is broad. And you're saying <laughs> black and indigenous, right? Which yeah. for whatever reason, people's back of their hair start curling up when you hear those two those two phrases. So what's some of the pushback? Thank you. Um, you know, I would say that originally um, when I first had started with the fund, and this is back in 2020, I, I will say like, well, let me back up for a quick second. I think that um, when we first moved to this country, we lived in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And then at, for some period of my time, I lived in Connecticut. And I was um, we were the, one of the first or maybe the first non-white family that lived in that town. Mm-hmm. So I think growing up, I was so used to convincing people who didn't think like me to think like me. And so, And I think a lot of people who are BIPOC, have that experience, particularly if they move away from their community mm-hmm. and go towards like the colleges or jobs that have like a lot of white people. They're always trying to convince other people that don't think like them to think like that, like like essentially have validity of their ideas, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think within that, we create a trauma-informed response that like marginal agreement is like success. And we feel like elated about that. Like we've somehow like, you know, helped to push something forward. And I think I felt that way growing up. I felt that way even when I started the fund. You know, I felt like, okay, I'm like going to convince everyone that like investing in black founders is the thing to do. And what I've realized actually, Tony, to your point, to your question is people who are fundamentally not seeing why investment into black founders is critical from not only a societal perspective, but an economic perspective. Right. Those are not individuals that I, as one person, can convince, right? I don't have the the psych cap over them. I'm not their family member. I don't have all of that history with them to be able to convince them of that. Their realities might have shaped their perspective in a way that like one person will not be able to convince them. And so actually, yes, I have received pushback, 
but I've also started to like train myself not to respond to the to the pushback. Like if you actually don't think that black and indigenous people should be focused on outside of POC, okay, that's your perspective, but we're not like aligned on that. We're not aligned on the base set of facts and I'm not gonna waste my time trying to like trying to convince you essentially that black and indigenous people matter and that the starting points of black and indigenous people is vastly different because of the way that we've structured our society. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, I love that attitude, that mindset in terms of, you know what, I'm the same, you know, can't beat them, join them. <laughs> All right. It's more of, Hey, this is what we're going to do. This is what I believe. If you're not there, then you know what? More power to you. I'm still going to love you, but we are still going to move forward. Love it. Love it. Yeah. It's their journey. Cause honestly, like what is there like to argue about when you say black and indigenous people need to like, we need to have clarification around that to ensure that those groups are supported. What pushback could you have that isn't rooted in racism and white supremacy? Exactly. Exactly. Let me ask you this in term. I'm sorry, Les, go ahead. I'm sorry about that. I, I am curious, though. I know that you personally didn't get any pushback, but have you had anybody come to you that is Black and Indigenous or one of the other, identify as one of the other, telling you there's no such thing as that or, you know, yeah. uh, that doesn't exist? Right. Uh, because yeah. we we are so conditioned to believe that yeah. we are of one ethnicity, uh, even yeah. though we are fully aware of our mixed heritage. Yeah. Um, you know, have you ever gotten any any black over that? I have. So yes, I think that uh, I have actually gotten a lot of pushback on it. From those that are not BIPOC, um, I tend to not necessarily um, entertain that. Um, And I think that most folks that are in the BIPOC sphere that have pushback are doing it from a trauma-informed place. I think that sometimes the different ethnic and cultural groups within the BIPOC sphere have been hurt, right? Every single group within the BIPOC sphere has been discriminated and oppressed. And sometimes we can only focus on our own hurt and pain that we can't see that other people in the BIPOC sphere also experience pain. And so I think that sometimes we build as a a different trauma-informed response, a lack of empathy. And so I think one, one, I I do think just education around like actually BIPOC what came from, you know, like what I was mentioning before less of like a lot of black individuals don't even know that the term BIPOC was made so that black individuals could be focused on. That was like number one. And a lot of black founders are like, oh, that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. But then two, I think that the other pushback is from a lack of empathy around like supporting other communities. So like if it's black uh, individuals, not seeing like how other individuals are supported or even in the Latino or Asian sphere of being like, well, we're working hard. So shouldn't we also be represented? Everyone's working hard. Everyone's oppressed. But that doesn't mean that there's not historical um, factors that make it so that different people start out in different ways and continue to be received in different ways. And that's the point. That's the important point that you made there. Historical oppression. Historical Mm -hmm. oppression. Mm -hmm. You know, people who come from that kind of a trauma you know, colonize, colonization and, and such. So definitely. Thanks for making that point. I'm sorry, Tony, go ahead. No, 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 no. It was excellent. The thing is intersectionality, you know, it's, um, again, three, four, five years ago, I didn't hear a lot of intersectionality. 
Right. So tell us a little bit, how has it evolved? How has it, you know, changed society? And then more importantly, you know, just in your own professional, personal life. Intersectionality, it was actually um, something that started to gain like popularity in the mental health space a little like uh, about 10 years ago, and then has started to come into like the mainstream media um, only less than five years ago. And so it's actually really critically important that we understand that because oftentimes, so as an example, I told you that I was a social worker, right? Mm -hmm. And I would be especially when I'm talking about BIPOC issues, there's always one person in the room who's white who says, yeah, but I was poor, right? I grew up with nothing. And now like, you know, or like I was a foster child, like I didn't even have like, you know, adequate housing or safety or security in that way. But now look at me, I'm in college, especially when I used to do college, uh, like group therapy sessions. And I would say, okay, this is exactly where intersectionality comes into play, right? Being in poverty is definitely a disadvantage. Being white is a significant advantage. And so when you couple those things together, because you are white and therefore, and, and poverty is just like being queer, is, can be a hidden identity, then you have the ability to utilize the advantages of being white to be able to still access your way into moving up in a capitalistic society, right? And the same thing is true, I think, a lot of times with within the BIPOC sphere around men is like, we are not experiencing the world in the same way, right? Even think about black men and black women are not experiencing the world in the same way. That's not to say that either of those groups are not experiencing struggles. It's saying that there is an intersectionality that needs to be recognized that when you are black and a man, being a man has certain levels of privileges and being black has certain levels of disadvantage in this particular country, right? And being a woman has certain levels of disadvantages, right? And, and those are different, right, in different scenarios, particularly when you compound the complex identity of being black, right? When, when we talk about like police brutality, being a black man actually disadvantages you more than being a black woman. But when it comes to sexual uh, safety, being a black woman, it is far less safe to be a black woman than it is to be a black man, right? And that's, and also dependent on age, right? And dependent on your circumstances. So a lot of like queer homeless youth are actually more prone to violence because they are homeless and they are young and they are BIPOC, right? So like there are different like levels to this. And I think actually from like a, an, a listener's perspective, mm -hmm. what I've taken away from it is to understand where your where your intersectionality gives you both the ability and to empathize as well as like trying to understand your own privilege like and 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 especially when we think about like we can think about gender privilege when we can think about class privilege we can think about race privilege and so this is something that i especially like to talk about within asian communities right mm -hmm. asian communities historically have come to this country only because they are wealthy in their country right mm -hmm. in in their respective countries and so while they are absolutely being discriminated against in this country you still have historical wealth and like the mindset of what that means and access to education in a prior country. And so you're coming to this country and still able to access some opportunities that people in this country are not able to access if they're black or Latino living in poverty. Go ahead, sorry. 
So basically what you're speaking to is the model minority myth that a correct like here correct, in the United States. Correct, correct. Whereas you obviously, you know, coming from Southeast Asia, you phenotypically are of brown complexion, but yet still you have an advantage because the historical um, abuse that has happened to people of color in this country does not actually touch you. Um, and we have to demystify that because a lot of people don't know where that word came from. I mean, it was started with Ronald Reagan and he's the one that initiated that. It gave people of Asian heritage, um, you know, a, a leg up in this country. Mind you, prior to him even making that statement, the Chinese that were here uh, during the, the building of the railroad, they were, you know, subjugated to a lot of things. Just people of color, anybody that comes here that is of a different uh, ethnicity or if different background. But how do we change that mentality? Because I believe that sometimes what happens is that a lot of my brothers and sisters that come from Southeast Asia, they don't see this mm-hmm. as they can't understand. A lot of my, my African brothers and sisters too can't understand why it is necessary to have this space, this safe space for people that are BIPOC. Correct. Yeah, I I think it's a really large, complex question um, because I think, and and I will say like fundamentally, I think that the solution starts with empathy and recognizing that even when you share the same skin or the same culture, that doesn't mean that you have the exact same experience as someone else. Mm -hmm. And being able to recognize that someone else in your culture in your like de- like complexion has had a different experience and letting that be valid going back to our first point which is two realities can be the same right i can be a black or a brown person and have one experience and someone who looks exactly like me maybe because of like having an immigrant status or having a different socioeconomic class might have a completely different experience and both of those things are valid i think can lead to some of that solution. I think oftentimes, too often, we generalize our own reality on other people. And so too often I hear many people from the Black, Indigenous, and I I haven't heard it as much in the Indigenous community, but I will say that across the Black, Latino, and Asian communities, we are all guilty of this, is individuals in our various communities who are successful will then say, well, look at me. I've been socioeconomically successful. I've been able to go to college. I've been able to get a job. So it is possible. It is possible for you. That doesn't mean that it is actually physically possible for someone else, because there are a whole set of other factors that even if a person looks exactly like you, comes from your same culture, because of intersectionality, they might have so many other factors that impede them from achieving that same goal, even if they work just as hard as you. And so I think that's like the fundamental takeaway from intersectionality is to stop generalizing your experience and putting that on other people and rather trying to figure out like, and listening to other people like, oh, so you weren't able to access my same level of wealth or education. Tell me more about your story. Let's build a roadmap of all the barriers that you've had. How do we then systemically and like collectively as a community start to figure out how we can remove some of those barriers? It starts with empathy. It starts with listening to other people because each person's journey is going to be unique to their intersectionality. 
Oh, my God. I mean, this is very educational. So based on that, Himalaya, how do we, you know, take this from being something that just, you know, from a mainstream standpoint started five years ago and then broaden it out where it becomes mainstream? I mean, where would you start? I mean, it seems like first you're saying you're starting with yourself from an empathy standpoint. So I guess that would be the first part. But how do we how do we strengthen this where the everyday person and, may, and look, we may not reach everybody, but at least more individuals will be able to stop and instead of putting everybody in boxes and saying, well, you did this and I didn't or I did it and you should be able to do it a zero sum game. How can we take yeah. it to the next level? Really, really great question. I will always say it starts with yourself mm -hmm. because I think that often, too often, we look at societal changes and we're like, oh, like a government or a corporation needs to change their thing, whether it's like around climate change, whether it's around racism, but also like how are you embodying white supremacy? How are you embodying the things that accelerate climate change, right? And like our policies and our, you know, like, you know, governing corporations only respond to the things that we as individuals want and, you know, push up. And so it, it does start for me at the individual level mm -hmm. of ensuring that we are also uh, examining how each of our practices and philosophies are aligning or not aligning with what our eventual goals are. That being said, this is why I'm actually really, really passionate about entrepreneurship because I think that entrepreneurship can not only be a pathway to economic development, but it also can be an opportunity to be able to allow different individuals to showcase the things that they are strong in mm -hmm. and be able to bring that into creating economic agency for themselves and their families and their communities without having all of the same like parameters that a normal corporate job would be, mm -hmm. right? Because like, if you think about a corporate job, first you have to have a good primary and grade school education to be able to access a really great Ivy League education or just a regular great education. You also have to be able to pay for that. Mm -hmm. Then you have to be able to access a corporate job. Then once you access a corporate job, you have to assimilate to the culture, the very white dominant culture of communication, of dressing, of how you present yourself, of how you like you know, engage with your peers, how you engage with your supervisor. There's so many levels where you lose yourself. And also like socioeconomically, you may not be able to achieve that. And for me, I feel like entrepreneurship gives a pathway for many more people to actually start where they're at and to be able to utilize the things that they're already good at, the things that they their culture is already really good at, to be able to help almost reclaim some of the things that were lost and to be able to utilize that to achieve economic independence and agency, but then also be able to prioritize the things that their culture is really good at, the things that they and their family are really good at. And so that for me is like one of the biggest things that I'm always talking about is like, there's not a lot of resources going into Hunts Point, but Hunts Point the individuals there are so brilliant and so able to do so much with so less. What if that turned? They're already doing small business ownership. They're just not thinking they're small business owners because it's all about the hustle, right? That's mm -hmm. what we do in BIPOC communities, mm -hmm. right? Is like, especially in like the, in the city, like- Every day places, I'm hustling, hustling, like, hustling. It's, <laughs> it's just a hustle, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, I'm going to go from one hustle to make money, to make rent. And I'm going to figure out how to make money the next day. I'm going to figure out, I'm like, 
from an outside perspective, sometimes that could look like a little bit of a scam, but internally, I believe it also shows the fundamentals of entrepreneurship, the fundamentals of business ownership. You're already really good at knowing how to run a business, how to sell, how to like do all the things to be able to create a profitable business. If that was transformed and honed into entrepreneurship, think of how many families in Hunts Point could be super successful and free of the need of external resources that are not coming. Wow, well said. Very well said, right? And and listen, we also live in a capitalist society. We live in a country that entrepreneurship is encouraged, right? It's, it's the backbone in terms of our foundation. So I love what you said. And I started crying a little bit when you talked about how you, you know, you start working in corporate America and you have to assimilate and then you have to, you know, I'm sitting here just seeing my life flash in front of my eyes. <laughs> all right. But all that being said, though, this, I'll be honest with you, I love your passion. I love everything that you're doing, you're, you're all, everything that you're bringing to the table. Let me ask you this. Outside of the entrepreneurship, well, I don't want to say outside of the entrepreneurship, how can we help you? take this to the next level? It's a great question. I think that um, one of the things that we do in our fund, so we have a main venture fund, but then we also have two nonprofits. One is focused on founder representation. Mm -hmm. One is focused on funder representation. And so the founder representation creates a, a business on-ramp into many people who don't even like consider being an entrepreneur. How do you actually take what you're doing as a side hustle and make it your main hustle. If that's like how would I explain it to the two of you, that's how I would say it's like, like in very like short terms is we're taking a bunch of people who have side hustles, making it their main hustle so that they can like start to transform their idea of how entrepreneurship can transform their lives and their community and their families' lives. Um, and so one of the things that would be really helpful is um, on that like nonprofit end of founder representation, if you are a current business owner, it's really great to be able to access the knowledge that you've utilized to be able to then help other people who are still in that mindset of like, well, I kind of need this corporate job. I don't want to let go of this, even if it's not a corporate job, even if it's a minimum wage job, I, I need it. I, this gives me security and entrepreneurship doesn't. Being able to see one of the factors of why entrepreneurship is successful in some regions is actually being able to see models of other people and being able to see it as like a reality. If right. you can't see it, sometimes you can't envision it. Right. And so being able to have access to more people who particularly in the black and indigenous communities who are business owners, I'd love to connect with them. I'd love to be able to help them help other individuals who are also in the black and indigenous communities be able to figure out a pathway for entrepreneurship that works for them. The other part is definitely in the venture fund. If, if either you are wanting to go into entrepreneurship, if you are wanting to figure out particularly how to utilize your dollar to facilitate societal change, I would love to chat about that because there are so many different ways. And that's not saying like our fund is the way. Our fund is one of many, many ways. But especially, Tony, what you were saying, we live in a capitalistic society, mm -hmm. but we can utilize our dollars to be able to facilitate the changes we want to see. And so for, for everyone on, a, on the varying ends of the socioeconomic spectrum, there are things that you can do monetarily or non-monetarily to be able to facilitate that outcome so that many more of us tomorrow are small business owner, many more of us are utilizing our dollars 
for consumption of small business owners that are in the BIPOC sphere. And we're utilizing our dollars to invest in many more startup companies that are led by BIPOC individuals that we want to see. That is awesome. That is awesome. Well, count us in. We're going to get together all after this, right? And we're going to sit down. We're going to connect our networks. And we're going to definitely do something because I be totally believe in the entrepreneurship. And if people can have, you know, charge of their own destiny, right, then to that point, it erases a lot of the things that you talked about earlier in terms of lack of opportunities based on, you know, BIPOC individuals or just people, people of color regardless. So, Number one, we want to thank you for joining. But however, I don't know if you notice or not. So I have an alter ego. You know, I'm Tony Tidbit. So I send out a motivational quote every day called Tony's Tidbits, right? So today I created one based on our talk. And I want to get your feedback and see if this fits what we talked about today. Okay? So today's tidbit is by Audrey Lord, And it says, there is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives mm. that was perfect would you agree with that i i would agree with that systemic problems require systemic solutions well you know what and you came here today and gave us a lot of solutions so we really appreciate it himalaya has been great for you to, to be able to join a black executive perspective podcast we would love to have you come back at some other time Right. We can talk about progress. We can talk about some other ideas. I know there's a million questions that Les didn't get a chance to ask that we want to dive into. And then, look, we're going to get together to do the uh, the pasta anyway. And we can come back and and I'll and, and more importantly, I just won't watch. I'll get involved this time. OK, you, you definitely have to get involved, Tony. <laughs> Natasha and I are formally inviting you, you and Les to come over to reclaim your roots, to eat amazing pasta, and we'll continue this conversation. Okay, great, great, great. So everyone, thanks for tuning in to, you know, a Black executive's perspective uh, about intersectionality with our guest, Himalaya Rao Patlapali. She was awesome, stuff to that nature. We really enjoyed her feedback, her passion, the whole nine yards. So please continue to tune in for season one of a Black Executive Perspective podcast. You can find a Black Executive Perspective podcast wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website at www.ablackexecutivesperspective.com or follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn, okay? For my guests, Himalaya, my co-host, the legendary, and it's her birthday today, so we got to say happy birthday, Les Fry. Happy birthday, Les. Thank happy you. birthday, Les. All right. Thank you. I'm Tony Tidbit. We talked about it. We'll see you next time. Love you a lot. We're out. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Tony Tidbit, a Black executive perspective, and for joining in today's conversation. With every story we share, every conversation we foster, and every barrier we address, we can ignite the sparks that bring about lasting change. And this carries us one step closer to transforming the face of corporate America. If today's episode resonated with you, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share this episode with your circle. And with your support, we can reach more people and tell more stories.